Welcome to the Spiritual Sexual Shamanic Podcast. Tune in as we explore all things sexuality, transformation, relationships, and freedom with ISTA faculty and experts from around the world. I'm your host, Simon Marvell, faculty with ISTA. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Spiritual Sexual Shamanic Podcast. I am Simon Marvell and I am ecstatic. I'm ecstatic to <laughs> be speaking with uh, Carolyn Elliott today. Carolyn is a, an author and uh, transformation catalyst based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She has a PhD in critical and cultural studies and founded the Sleepover Mystery School, a cauldron for diving into your vast divine nature through ritual experiences. She's known for her unique approach to personal growth and self-discovery, which is at once practical and mystical. With a highly engaging and accessible writing style, I, I feel, and I know others feel as well, she's captivated readers around the world through her thought-provoking books and, and her innovative group programs. Uh, in her book, Awaken Your Genius, she invites readers on a transformative journey to uncover their hidden talents and unleash their creative potential. Her book, Existential Kink, explains her groundbreaking program of the same name, which invites participants to explore the edges of their comfort zones and embrace the transformative power of discomfort. Existential Kink, the book and the method have gained a devoted following uh, and have been instrumental in helping individuals break free from limitations and cultivate personal growth. With a focus on practical mysticism and personal alchemy, Carolyn's work has touched the lives of many, and we are very grateful to have her here today. Carolyn, welcome, and thanks oh, for being here. Thank you, Simon. <laughs> what a wonderful introduction. Can I hire you as a copywriter? You're good. <laughs> <laughs> Totally, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do like I do like writing copy, um, and and it's fun just to celebrate to you know like to dive into. You produce so much material, you know, mm. and it is so enjoyable to engage with. It's my personal feeling, and um, a lot of people I know we enjoy talking about your work. Um, so just to like write material that comes out of that is a pleasure. So thanks for allowing me that pleasure. Yes. <laughs> I, I was one like you, you do have a lot of a lot of work to engage with. It's really so generous. Um, but but my introduction to you was was through your book Existential Kink. Someone gave it to me on a farm in Australia, hmm. and <laughs> and and so this is this is my doorway in. And um, I'd love to dive into this idea of existential kink to begin with. So I wonder if you could tell us maybe just just sort of initially what what is existential kink? What is this concept that um, seems to have resonated with so many people? Yes, thank you. Um, and I love that image of somebody giving you a, the book on a farm in Australia. It's so <laughs> fun when these ideas travel around the world. Um, so existential kink is basically the idea that uh, all of us human beings – um, at a deep soul level, which is usually entirely unconscious to a significant degree, which means 
our ordinary ego minds have no awareness of it to begin with. Um, at a deep level, we have an attraction to, a fascination with, um, we feel compelled by, we feel curious about the painful possibilities of existence in incarnation. Um, so it's analogous, uh, as the name suggests, to like bedroom kink, BDSM, or, you know, when somebody has their partner tie them up on a Saturday night and drop hot wax onto them. Except in this case, uh, the partner who's erotically torturing us is life, the universe itself. <laughs> and um, my, the premise of the, the whole philosophy, the notion of existential kink, is that there's a kind of a wonderful shortcut that's available to us, which is if we have the courage to admit to ourselves that, yes, I'm not just my ego mind, I'm vast, I contain multitudes, some parts of me that I may not yet be in conscious relationship with have strong attractions to things that my conscious mind judges as terrible. So I've found for myself, and so have thousands of people that I've worked with, that we have masochistic parts and we have sadistic parts. And um, I have masochistic parts that are like super turned on by scarcity, humiliation, um, <laughs> rejection. And, um, and I likewise, I have sadistic parts that just get a real thrill out of, um, you know, imposing, <laughs> imposing pain, even on people that I love, especially on people that I love. And what I found is that the more that we can bring those parts into consciousness through love, through approval, through getting on their side and, and deliberately letting their eros be present in our bodies, letting ourselves mm. um, somatically feel the fulfillment of various uh, challenging parts in our lives that these, <laughs> these things create. The more we do that, I call it getting off in existential kink, and we can talk about that too. Um, the more we succeed in making the unconscious conscious and the pioneering psychotherapist uh, and genius wizard magician Carl Jung said, until we make the unconscious conscious, it will rule our lives and we will call it fate. So the idea is that um, if we want to have deliberate, magical shaping ability over our lives, we have to become willing to bring um, bring things into consciousness. And the wonderful thing, because part of the crazy thing about these dark taboo sort of desires is that as long as they are unconscious, as long as they are not related um, to our ego personality, they are all the more fertile and powerful because the unconscious is like a womb and whatever is in there will just you know, give birth in our lives to various synchronicities, relationships, events, some of which can be uh, very, very painful. So the fun thing is, is that when we make something conscious, something uh, like a dark desire for scarcity, humiliation, rejection, a dark desire to sadistically um, bring pain to people that we love um, for some sense of power or whatever, when we make that conscious, it 
it's no longer in that womb. It's no longer gestating and giving birth to circumstances and, and synchronous experiences, and it loses a great deal of its power. And what happens instead is that um, our conscious desires gain a lot more energy and a lot more oomph. It's like there's an alignment between our conscious and our unconscious minds, and, um, and really beautiful things can begin to be born in our lives. And I have all sorts of analogies and metaphors and everything uh, case studies stories to explain this, but that's the high level overview of existential kink. Basically, it's this idea that we can really change our lives for the better really quickly in a magical, integrative, hermetic, Jungian fashion when we are willing to erotically, heartfully uh, celebrate and take responsibility for our own deep power as creators. So it's I'll just I'll zip it right there and let you. <laughs> ask oh, you could keep going. That's for sure. Um, I, I mean, to say we'd be happy for you to mm-hmm. keep going. That's for sure. Um, a lot of, I think it's a common view to see kink in various, um, in, in various interpretations of what kink could be and in various contexts as scary, as bad as dangerous um so in some settings as sort of um necessarily non-consensual um as death focused all these kinds of as too dark um and and maybe in response to those feelings that that attitude towards the kinky as a category people focus on other forms of call it self-improvement um like discipline and um and from another angle love and light um try you know call in what you want and don't focus on what you don't want how do you how do you speak to 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 someone coming from that angle yeah wonderful so um i mean the first thing that springs to mind is that i'm in (laughs) I'm in a non-consensual relationship with the universe, with life itself. So um, life, you know, is not asking my permission before my loved ones die, before war breaks out, before all sorts of things, you know, happen that we do not have any egoic um, conscious consent over. So part of what existential kink is offering is this idea that like spiritually we can learn how to, hold that space of consent to have a a beautiful kinky lovemaking experience with life. Um, And that is a matter of, you know, surrender, surrender in the deepest kind of bhakti yoga sense of like, wow, I'm, uh, you know, Kali Ma is the Dom in this world and, or whoever, however we want to describe the divine. And how can I surrender and open myself so that I receive these strokes, these touches, these kisses that are always happening in the form of um, various events and interactions in my life? Um, Hmm. Yeah, in a a way that's deep and beautiful instead of uh, miserable. So the way that I connect existential kink to more love and light teachings about creating our own reality 
is first off to say like those teachings are completely true. Like in my experience, all of that law of attraction stuff is completely true, which is that the, uh, the vibrational essence, the emotional essence with which I am, that I'm inhabiting every day has a great deal to do with what kind of relationships, what kind of opportunities, what kind of resources come my way. Um, the thing is, is that I could never get that ignoring the bad stuff to work. And I don't really think that very many other people have been able to get it to work for them. <laughs> as far as I can tell, it doesn't work. And um, I think that it has a little bit of a generational difference, which is that um, people in the baby boomer generation, I don't know um, if you're into astrology at all, they had Pluto and Leo. And Pluto and Leo mm. is a sort of, um, I mean, Pluto is still the Lord of the underworld, but Leo is very sunny, very like, hey, let's look on the bright side. And um, I'm a millennial, I'm an elder millennial, and we have uh, Pluto and Scorpio in the millennial generation. And Pluto and Scorpio is a lot more like, um, utterly fascinated with the darkest atrocities of experience, completely you know, willing to look there and willing to go there. And um, I guess I guess there's some people who have had success with magic via that sort of love and light, ignore the dark stuff route. I have not really personally met any. Um, it entails, so existential kink takes that idea from the law of attraction that we create what we desire and is like, yes, absolutely, yes. And some of what we desire at a deep unconscious level is very, very painful and um, has to do with death and has to do with all of the things, you know, our ego values all of the things that promote survival. So social approval, social status, having everybody like me, everybody love me, having lots of money, lots of fame, lots of health, lots of well-being. Um, and as Carl Jung pointed out, that's, you know, the main problem with human beings is that we are one-sidedly identified with our ego, but the ego is simply not all of who we are. We are also the self with a capital S. And the self with capital S includes um, parts that can operate like autonomous beings at times that are really fascinated with everything that does not promote survival, like like rejection, humiliation, having everybody hate me, having, you know, <laughs> scarcity, hurting other people, be all of these all of these things. So it's like um to somebody who at first of all, I would ask that person if they're having the success that they want to have with their current mm. approach to spirituality and magic, you know, are they feeling like they have to hide big parts of themselves and their spiritual communities? Because that's something that I encounter all the time. People who have been in yoga schools or Buddhist schools or really fluffy new age schools or churches who just feel like they have had to, um, you know, censor themselves and shrink themselves, social justice circles, you know, all these various things where their mm. sexuality, their, um, their animal desires for power and dominance, their, you know, their sense of humor even has had to be um, cut off in order for them to feel like they're receiving approval and doing the right thing according to their spiritual path, this sort of notion of a transcendent God that demands asceticism in order to be in relationship with them. 
And mm. uh, in my experience, that's just not really, ha- maybe the universe once worked that way. <laughs> maybe the relationship between the human and the divine once worked that way. But I really don't think that right now it does. Um, I feel like there is a imminent divine presence. There is an ultimate wholeness. And the more we are in connection with our own wholeness, which includes these deeper, darker, kinkier desires that I'm talking about, um, the more we are sort of a microcosmic, round (laughs) reflection of the giant macrocosmic whole. And thus, the more Mm. we're able to receive communications from that whole. Whereas if I'm completely trying to be like, no, I don't want anything that's going to take me closer to death or injury or illness. I want to completely avoid that. Um, then I shut, I will not be open to the full gifts that divinity wants to give me. I'll, I'll have a very distorted perspective. Um, and I think we've all encountered, you know, people who are spiritually enthusiastic, but who are very ungrounded or very ineffective in their lives. Um, And yeah, to me, this has to do with them not knowing how to be in relationship with wholeness. So part of my mission is um, Mm. I'm really all about bringing alchemical literacy to the world. So this notion of learning how to make the unconscious conscious and do this transmutative magic of, um, you know, instead of doing all of this accidental magic where we're accidentally creating these negative patterns, how do we lovingly, erotically make those conscious so that we create much more beautiful patterns? Mm, mm, mm. I love that so much. Um, Yeah. Could could you say more about this idea of alchemical literacy? Oh, Um, endlessly. Yes, I can. Yeah. (laughs) I, I would, I like. It's. It, I think it's really important us, for us to get back to um, potentially like how you arrived at the idea of existential kink and 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 to feel some examples. And I'd also love for you to um, go through the process, which is an incredibly like applicable process for people to go through. And I love that about it. But um, maybe before we get back to that point, like tell us a little bit more about alchemical literacy. Like, yes. um, I love that. What do people need to know? Like what aren't they, you've said a little bit already, but like, could you say more? Like what do they totally. need to learn? What can they get mm-hmm. fluid with that they're not fluid with right now? Absolutely. So I use this phrase alchemical literacy because, um, uh, this metaphor of literacy. So for example, back in the day, um, the only people who were literate thousands of years ago were the priests, were the kings, and it was regarded as this super powerful magic. Like when you can read and write, you can do all sorts of things and make all sorts of things happen Mm. that are not possible without that technology. And Mm. for a very long time, this skill of literacy was regarded as this, um, you know, unattainable for the masses. Like, just people, um, the masses of people were too stupid. There was no point in trying to teach them literacy, no point at all. And we learned gradually that that wasn't true. You know, with the invention of the printing press and widespread schooling, we discovered that actually pretty much almost everybody can learn to read and write and wield this power, this fantastical technology of literacy by which we make all sorts of 
we've, we've created computers and the internet and we yeah communicate across mm. time and space. So um, similarly, this work of total alchemical self-realization, the ability to turn the, um, the pain and the muck and the poison of life into the shining gold of joy and beauty and fulfillment, um, that has also been regarded as a very esoteric skill that only super enlightened genius masters can do. And I just have this creeping suspicion. <laughs> I just, and, and this, I've seen it with my own eyes, that that's not actually true, that actually um, alchemical literacy is just as teachable as reading and writing. And, you know, it can take maybe a year or two to teach a kid to read and write. Likewise, it can take a couple years to teach a person to be really alchemically literate, but it can be taught. And um, mm. the process of alchemical literacy, well, there's, I mean, there's a very, there's a host of tools that support it, including, you know, dream work, dream interpretation, um, all sorts of various meditation and magic rituals, work with psychedelics, work with the endogenous psychedelic of sexual energy. And I do think that existential kink is a tool that um, can support alchemical literacy in a very deep way. So I define alchemical literacy as knowing how to make unconscious things conscious. And some mm. of the best tools for that are that, that I use in connection with my own existential kink practice are self-inquiry, just like being very, very curious and using these existential kink axioms that we have, um, like having is evidence of wanting as an excavation tool of inquiry. So like, what am I having in my life? What is appearing in my experience? And, and then the question could there possibly be some part of my being that is really delighting in this recurring thing <laughs> that my ego hates, my ego hates it, but could there be some part of me that really, really likes it? And can I get in touch with that part? Can I dialogue with it? Can I send it um, very non-judgmental love and compassion and welcome and bring that into conscious relationship? So it's, Eventually, I see it as like, you know, if we imagine our egos as starting out as these little dots, and then there's this like circle of the larger self around us. And our egos are these tight little fearful dots. Basically, mm -hmm. I see alchemical literacy as um, sort of expanding our egos to be uh, rounder, more spacious, more open, not such tight little fearful dots, <laughs> and more able to be in communication with the circle of the whole self, which includes quite scary, painful things. Um, like I mentioned Kali Ma earlier, there's all of these images of divinity that um, are scary. They're devouring, they're bloody, they're painful. And of course, in Mm, uh, I guess what we would call like Western culture in Christianity, we've had this image that's been sold to us of like an entirely good God who somehow mysteriously is in always being um, <laughs> challenged by this devil person who is also really powerful, but maybe not as powerful, but 
<laughs> Anyways, this weird dualism, and um, and mm-hmm. it's caused mm-hmm. quite a lot of trouble for us <laughs> in Western society, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, this idea that divinity is only good, and I like to say that genuine goodness is so good that it is actually loving and embracing of absolute evil. That's what absolute goodness does. And of course, that's when you really think the implications of that through, that can be a very terrifying idea for many people. And they do not like that idea. Um, They want human minds in the West tend to want there to be some sort of separation between goodness and evil. Um, Mm -hmm. But anyhow, the only the thing that I keep coming back to is um, love as this reconciling force and as this equilibriating force that allows um, us to be in relationship with all dimensions of ourselves, the angelic dimensions, the mammalian animal dimensions, the lizardy dimensions, <laughs> the, um, the demonic dimensions, because uh, truly to me, I believe that humans are microcosms of the entire world. So everything is present in us. Um, okay. So that. That was saying a bit about alchemical literacy. I can say some about the origins of how I came up with Existential King. Thank you. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Okay, cool. So, um, oh, let's think back here. All right. So, and and a lot of this is in the EK book. Uh, Let's see if I can come up with some juicy details that aren't in the book itself. Um, (laughs) I was in graduate school. You and I, Simon, were just talking about the deep, kinky pains and pleasures of graduate school in <laughs> studying poetics. And um, mm-hmm. oh, wait, I had just graduated from graduate school. So I'd been in graduate school and um, I'd read a whole lot of Jung and Freud and continental philosophy and um, uh, tons and tons of stuff. Nietzsche, all of these existential philosophers and um, and also a lot of I, my dissertations focused in on American poets, so Walt Whitman and Emily Dickinson. And I had begun to get really curious about uh, liminality. So like poetry as an entrance place to this like just uncertain sort of threshold realm of the between, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was also at the time very interested in studying, you know, what we think of as those love and light sort of law of attraction things. I mean, my existence was pretty miserable. I was very poor. I was in terrible relationships all the time, just a string of utterly miserable, depraved relationships. (laughs) And um, I I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And... uh, you know, living in Rust Belt, America, freezing in the winter. You were in Buffalo, so, oh, God, yeah. And um, it's just a bleak, a bleak sort of existence I was in. Um, (laughs) And, yeah, I just, I had graduated. I knew I didn't want to be a professor. Um, I was involved with this Unity Church. So Unity is um, New Thought, so New Thought... um, comes out of Emerson, comes out of this like 19th century revival of interest mm. in Hermeticism. 
mm-hmm. and uh, and is very much where the whole positive thinking and like the secret stuff came out of. And so I was really mm. steeped in this notion of like, okay, desire creates reality. Can I find the ways that that's true? And then I also read all of this Jung and Freud, and I knew there was this notion of the unconscious and this idea that we might have desires and drives that we are unconscious of, not aware of. And I was in sort of dire straits. I was, uh, let's see, what year was it? It was like 2015. I was sleeping on friends' couches. I was like paying my friends like a hundred bucks a month to sleep on their couch. I was um, trying to get by as a creativity coach because I had written my book, Awaken Your Genius. So I was trying to do that online, coaching people with their creativity. And I was just like squeaking by. And one day it was very brutally cold. It was a December morning and I was in line at the local food bank to try to get some government cheese. (laughs) Essentially, that's actually what was happening. It was 1000% what was happening. And I was on the phone with my mother and, um, you know, my mother, who was basically like refusing to feed me, my mother was like, well, you're a grown woman, Carolyn, you better go out there and figure it out. Okay. (laughs) Anyways, so I was in line and I was so just like feeling this pain of humiliation, obviously, because I had, you know, I had friends that I had gone to high school with, college with, who would call me up and ask me to go out to dinner or whatever. And I could not afford like a $20 (laughs) dinner or anything. Anyways, I was in this like deep humiliation. And I was like, wow, I wonder if part of me enjoys this. Could some unconscious secret part of me be enjoying this? And at the time, interestingly, this is something that I don't usually talk about on many interviews and I didn't even go a whole lot into in the book, but um, I was involved with an organization called One Taste. And One Taste uh, is quite nefarious. There's been like documentaries about the scandals made. But One Taste taught a practice called orgasmic meditation. I think they're even trying to revive themselves now, which anyways, that's interesting. But orgasmic meditation was great. So apart from the flaws of the organization or whatever the things themselves, you know, just like hot yoga is great, whatever you think about Bikram. Um, orgasmic meditation is great, whatever you think about Nicole Dedon. And bless her, I see many bodhisattva dimensions of her being and I have a lot mm. of gratitude to her. But um, mm. the a practice of orgasmic meditation was basically the best thing going in my life at the time. And it involved being stroked for 15 minutes, no strings attached, just would get my clitoris stroked. <laughs> so I was go I would go to these orgasmic meditation meetings, get my clitoris stroked in this very, you know, contained fashion. So like orgasmic meditation is 15 minutes long, there's a timer, there's this procedure that's repeated over and over again, people wear gloves, there's lube, there's little towelettes, there's this whole little contained scene with blankets and pillows, and it's quite nice. And it was helping me get in touch with the erotic energy in my body. And um, I was having like Uh, you know, totally sober, not on any kind of drugs or alcohol, I was having psychedelic visions during these um, orgasmic meditation sessions. And it was very deep for me because I had always, I have a background in magic in the sense that my father growing up was, um, like say my father never met a cult he didn't like. He took us to every sort of weird (laughs) spiritual thing around. We were 
in I was initiated as a Rosicrucian when I was like uh, 11. We were Rosicrucians. We were Druids. We were Wiccans. We went to Buddhist places, Hindu places. Um, my father had almost died at the Jim Jones cult back in the 60s. He narrowly escaped that too. <laughs> moved to Pittsburgh and meet my mother. Um, so anyways, my dad is interested in all sorts of far out things and took me around to all sorts of far out things. So I had, I was familiar with the idea of the goddess and I was familiar with the idea of magic, but I didn't have, it was, I had it filed under a category of like dorky stuff that my father is into that I'm not necessarily that into. But one day in hmm. orgasmic meditation, I had this very vivid experience of the goddess as the erotic energy in my body, I saw, you know, this, the orgasm was happening and I saw with my third eye, these, it was like these, <laughs> hard to describe it. It was, um, it was a butterfly and then it was a waterfall and then it was a rose. It was all these like classically feminine shapes, but I could directly perceive the Shakti orgasm pleasure energy taking those shapes spontaneously. And it was very revelatory to me. And I was like, oh, you know, the goddess is present in my body. This energy, mm. this generative power is right here. It's this orgasmic power. And there was a saying in the orgasmic meditation movement, which is um, the truth is sensational. And um, so I was just thinking about all of these things. And I... <laughs> And it was this sort of long, slow, gentle process of inquiry over a period of months where I would just pay attention. Like I was, you know, frustrated in my coaching business. I think I was charging like a hundred dollars an hour for coaching. I could barely find any clients. Meanwhile, I knew people through the orgasmic meditation movement who were charging a thousand dollars an hour for coaching. And this blew my mind. I mean, I'd grown up in Pittsburgh. My parents worked in nonprofits. The thought that anybody would pay anybody $1,000 an hour for anything just blew my mind. So I remember I started out doing the inquiry with um, the work of Byron Katie, which I love, 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 and highly recommend to everybody as a warm-up for existential kink practice. And I was inquiring on the belief, um, you know, people should want to pay me $1,000 an hour for coaching. I've written this fabulous book. Why are they paying these other losers who haven't even <laughs> done anything? So anyways, I was investigating that belief. And I, you know, in the work of Byron Katie, you turn things around. So I turned it around mm. to um, nobody should ever want to pay me absolutely anything for coaching ever, ever, ever. And when I thought that thought, I felt this like zing all through my body and I felt my clitoris pulse. And I was like, oh my goodness, I am legit actually turned on by the thought of being devalued, being never paid anything. And it was just this crazy moment for me because I realized like, wow, I don't just have bedroom kink. I have, this is an existential matter that affects my whole livelihood and everything. <laughs> my life I have an existential kink where I am turned on by scarcity and being um being devalued in this way and I found out that that similarly I could find sensations of turn on connected to like the anxiety of whether or not I would be able to scrape together a hundred bucks to pay my roommates for letting me sleep on their couch the you know uh, just survival, just the anxiety of survival. I found that I had pleasure in like the romanticism of this bleak Midwest 
Appalachian poverty that I was sunk in. I found that I had mm. pleasure in, um, you know, the sort of like righteous saintlyhood of like not having enough money to be in any kind of like I was powerless. So I couldn't have power over other people. So therefore I was like holy and pure while people with money were bad and wrong. Um, really there was just, I, I had the humiliation of like being asked out to dinner with my friends and having to tell them like, you know, I, if you can pay for me, I can go to dinner with you. <laughs> like, mm. anyways, it was just this whole ripe, rich field. And I, you know, I knew that from reading all this Freud and Jung, that anything that we shame or repress will stay in the unconscious. So I was like, God damn, I do not want this to stay in the unconscious. I do not want this to keep replaying. So let's see if I can shift this. Let's see if I can be in like a loving, playful, embracing relationship with this. And I challenged myself. I was like, you know, can I get on the side of the part of me that is so fulfilled by this poverty and scarcity and you know what will happen then i'll just see what will happen. i mean i have nothing to lose i really like have nothing to lose so let's try to do this so i did and i experimented with that and over a couple weeks i found that i really could get on the side of that part of me and i could mm. let myself feel really fully erotically fulfilled by the current circumstances in my life as you know um, like as deadly and dark as they were. And uh, this was just, this was huge because what happened was a massive shift in my identity. And I talk about this, um, I could probably mm. talk about it a lot mm. more than I have already, but identity shift is um, the most powerful form of practical magic as far as I'm concerned. Um, and mm. existential king can be a very useful way to do it because my identity shifted from this like, poor, pathetic, lacking, put upon, uh, you know, romantically deprived person into suddenly seeing myself as like, oh my God, I am so fulfilled. I am a lavishly fulfilled woman. My deepest, darkest desires are being just, mwah, just, ooh, just exquisitely fulfilled every day. Oh. How lucky am I? And, you know, and it wasn't ironic, wasn't sarcastic, was completely dorkily genuine. <laughs> and uh, and that's what I encourage people to get to. Because sometimes when they hear about existential kink, they can take this sort of sarcastic stance of like, oh, yeah, this thing is happening and I love it so much. It's like, okay, no, you fucking don't. Like, if you, like, if you love it, you love it. And, and in classic law of attraction style, your vibe actually reflects love, enjoyment, fulfillment. So my vibe, my identity started reflecting love, fulfillment, joy, and my external reality had not shifted at all. It was still, you know, government cheese and sleeping on couches and, um, you know, like this depraved, <laughs> all of it, not good. It just wasn't great. But my relationship with it had changed. And very soon, my whole, I just started getting all of these different ideas, ideas that only came to me because I saw myself as an awesome, fulfilled person, ideas that were would not have come to me if I hadn't had, had that change in identity. So, um, and there were rather simple things. Like I was like, oh, I could start an email list. Oh, if I got an email list, I could offer, 
you know, I'm good at writing, I can write things, I can get more people on the email list, I can make offers. Anyways, within months, my income had tripled, and then my income had 10 timed. And then I moved to Bali. And then I visited Lisbon and Paris. And I was like, life fucking rocks. And I started teaching Mm. other people how to do this. And I started applying this to other areas of my life. So like, um, you know, I've been in, they were like, frankly, like, just these, I mean, some of them were not abusive relationships. Some of them were just bizarre relationships. Some of them were like abusive relationships. And I, I got really curious, you know, can I apply the same logic? And can I open up to having a really, truly wonderful relationship? And it turns out that I was able to do that. And, you know, I'm with the mm-hmm. wonderful man I'm with today. And we have a family and everything is it's just so grand. And so I, I know that that transformation is possible and I'm very keen to help many other people have that transformation. And one way of thinking about it is it involves taking like a kind of total divine level responsibility for one's life and one's experience and specifically Mm. the recurring patterns. Um, and uh, and transforming them. So there's a lot of details into like what I found over the years supports an existential kink practice, um, but that's the origin story. Incredible, yeah. I, I pulled out a, a quote from from this that seems is related to your, your, um, uh, your the story that you're just telling there. And I wrote this I wrote this down. It really resonated, and it, it just was an aha moment. You say when you're telling this story of arriving at this realization that as I consciously, deliberately got off on my scarcity kink and practiced my havingness level, which maybe you can say something about, um, I felt fulfilled and I simply lost my kinky hunger for scarcity, uh, poverty and humiliation. It just, as you get off on it, the charge, the, that, the charge that that kink has just wasn't there anymore yeah it like it climaxed it was like i'm done i'm good that's awesome and it just needed that what what did it need it needed that injection of uh beautiful attention and 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 eros running through it and to be embraced by erotic love, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. To be penetrated. And yeah. you have this beautiful like, imagery throughout the book of like of a kind of like a sexual union, right? And mm-hmm. it, and penetrating that that kink, that shadow with something something greater, you know, like the divine self or however you want to phrase it. But really paying attention and penetrating all the way through and it just goes, ah, I'm yeah, that's what I wanted, you know. Yes. Is this, is this kind of in line? Yes, yeah. absolutely. I like to think of the unconscious as like, um, you know, so if you think about chivalric relationships and there would be a knight and there would be a lady and the knight mm. would have all of these heroic ideals and, you know, want to go on quests. And uh, there's this idea that the knight needed first to totally humble himself, totally prostrate himself to the lady and receive the blessing of the lady. And then the knight would have the power to go forth and do what he needed to do in the world and achieve those heroic objectives. And I, 
I think that existential kink works just like that, which is that the conscious mind we can think of as the sort of the masculine part of ourselves. Um, and it has, you know, these heroic objectives, you know, I want to create a good life for myself and people I love. I want to do these things. And the unconscious mind is this feminine part of us, the lady. And I think where most of us go wrong in modern life is that we do not prostrate our conscious minds <laughs> to the unconscious at all. Uh, um, mm, and, mm. Uh, and we even act like it's, you know, completely impossible to gain any idea of what's happening there. I mean, we do call it the unconscious, but you can know what's in your unconscious. Very simple way of knowing what's powerfully operating in your unconscious is to look at what is actually happening in your life because your unconscious is the generative, creative, feminine part of you that gives birth to actual circumstances in your life. So, um, so it's it's basically it's all around you. It's in your you are it's <laughs> the external world is is uh, that's your unconscious. Um, so so you don't you don't need to go to psychoanalysis for years on end to work out what's in your subconscious because it's literally what you know you, what? what your life consists of. You actually don't, and it's fascinating because I even found in Freud's letters I should find the exact citation, but he wrote about he would write to his people people that he was training in psychoanalysis. And he was like, look, the thing is, is that people have these deep attractions that they're not aware of to the horrible thing in their life. And they keep creating it over and over again. And a part of them secretly loves it. But Lord, I've tried telling people that and they just like scream at me and run out of the room. So what I have yeah. to do is I have to like, get them to bring me their nighttime dreams and step-by-step step show them in their nighttime dreams, how their own dreaming self is telling them this about themselves. And that's, how I get them to accept these very unpleasant truths because it comes from their own, their own dreaming mind and then they can accept it. But if it, I just try mm. to tell them they can't accept it. So I'm a little bit, I'm doing it differently than Freud a little bit. I'm, I am just telling people, look, you have these attractions to things. I'm doing it on a mass scale. So people take it a little bit less personally. I'm like, look, we all do. Uh -huh. Just we all do. Okay. It's not personal. It doesn't mean anything bad or wrong about you. It's very human. And, um, and that's cool because that, you know, recognition that it's a human quality and not an individual, uh, failing seems to help people open up to this truth. Um, so yeah, it was well known by Freud and Jung and Adler and all of the psychotherapists, all of the people who pioneered that. But yeah, they could not get people to understand it if they just told them up front. So they developed the whole art mm. of uh, dream interpretation, which is great. And right. I love doing dream work. I do a, t a ton of it myself. So um, in fact, dream work has been helping me get in touch with my sadism, which is very challenging for me. Like my masochism is relatively accessible, but my sadism is, um, it's even more taboo to me. Like the idea of hurting myself, oh, that's normal. <laughs> but the idea of hurting somebody else, the idea that some part of me might want to hurt my loved ones is really scary to me. Anyways, dream work mm. helps me do that. So there's all of these tools. Psychotherapy has wonderful uses, but, um, but yeah, you don't need to do that. You can just look at your life if you have the courage, if you have the honesty. And I believe um, many people do nowadays because we're just, we so badly are want to change and we want to be in touch with our own magical power. 
So, um, so yeah, you can just do that. And where, where was I? Oh yeah. Be, have a totally unironic, completely dorky, completely utterly humble, surrendered, prostated relationship. So if I just like, I'm humbling myself as a knight, I'm humbling myself to the lady of my unconscious. Mm. And I'm saying, look, you are awesome, right? As you, everything that you're already doing, everything that's already in you, everything you are already creating is so mm. beautiful, is so wonderful. And it exceeds, its wondrousness exceeds what I can know. And I don't judge you and I don't shame you. And I just give thanks for you. And when I put myself in that total, like prostrated relationship with the my divine feminine unconscious, that is when this beautiful lovemaking union happens. And, um, you know, it's like, I have to have this attitude, the knight of the conscious mind has to have this attitude of like not demanding anything, not demanding that she change, not being like, hurry up, bitch, change these circumstances, make this better. <laughs> You're not good enough the way you are. It cannot be that attitude. That attitude won't work. But when there's genuine surrender, what mm. does happen is that the unconscious it falls in love with the conscious, with the night. And it's like, you know what? Mm. I will give you the energy. I will give you the magical power. I will give you the creation that you need to fulfill your heroic aims. And then zoom, the night goes forth and, and does those things. Mm. That's my experience. <laughs> yeah. Yep. This resonates strongly with my, uh, with me. It, it mm. does. And I, I'm sure it does with, uh, many people listening yeah yeah and and you know we 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 cover some of the t some of the teaching in in ista um in the in the experience like this is the foundational level experience we have is is around shadow stalking and um some of the concepts we have are cunning and patience um and i, I love this idea of prostration as as well um because if there's this sort of very direct uh, um, conflict maybe fueled meeting with the unconscious. Um, it it's it's like ten steps ahead of you. It it can see you coming. <laughs> it's more it's more powerful. It's like come on, like nothing. That's not how we do this, you know. Mm -hmm. and so the, I'm hearing like something of the dance with the unconscious and the and and the gestures and the, and the. I don't want to say seduction, but but something like that. The yeah. Um, the frustration and the humility and the, um, the deep understanding and the loving and the loving and compassionate approach and um, these kinds of things coming into that. Um, so you can, mm -hmm. so it can sort of unravel together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In that meeting. Yeah. yeah. And then what that creates is a unity of will. So um, most everybody has a very divided will because their conscious mind is not in this deep surrendered loving relationship with the unconscious. Um, and we're very ineffective when we have a divided will. And um, so mm. to create this unified will, it's this huge, it's a vast alchemical achievement. I mean, in essence, it is like the grail mystery. And it's funny because it's in a paperback book that you can buy on Amazon, <laughs> Barnes and Noble. But it, uh, you know, this thing that we're talking about is is very, very deep and it's really um, very connected to what so much of myth and magic is about. Um, 
So yeah, it's um, creating a unified will that, I mean, this gets into all sorts of other things, mystery school type things, but, um, Hmm. you know, I think I'm, I spend a lot of time thinking about Aleister Crowley and Thelema and Thelema means will in Greek. And, um, Hmm. One of the things that I love about existential kink is that it is a very direct way to get in touch with one's true deep will, to let that will um, move through you, move through you so that you're being, um, you know, you're an instrument of the divine whole rather than an instrument of some psychotic, limited ego notion that you have and in a way we're always instruments of the divine whole even when we are (laughs) being driven by our psychotic ego ideas but it feels Mm. a lot better (laughs) it feels so much better when we have this integration and this unity then the divine can move us and we're like ah this is lovely instead of it being really yucky Mm. yeah I, I feel like now is a beautiful time, if you're willing, to could you step us through a process that people might take themselves through if they want to? Because existential kink, it, it's an idea, it's a book, but it's, a, it's really like the foundation is, is this process that people mm-hmm. can, can mm-hmm. guide themselves through. Uh, w- would you be up for maybe just sort of explaining how, how people might, might do that? Totally. So yeah, so the existential kink meditation is what I call it. And and, um, yeah, and the instructions are in the book. And I will also talk about it right now. So the first thing to do is identify something in, I'll just speak in terms of me, something in my life that I do not like. Ooh, I don't like that. <laughs> so, you know, something like, mm, no, this thing is happening and I do not like it. And then to get really, really curious, like, okay, well, I know that my conscious mind doesn't like it. My ego mind does not like it. Could there be some part of me that feels some desire or entertainment or fascination with this dimension of my life? So, um, I can give you the example of something that I'm working on now, which is that my husband and I throughout our marriage have had this interesting dynamic where I'll do something and he'll be offended by it and he'll get gruff with me. And then my feelings will be so, so hurt. And we've, we've done that dance over and over again. And I've always thought of it as like, Oh, he just gets gruff out of nowhere. He's just so easily offended. He just gets, Oh, he's so rude. I don't know what his problem is. And lately, I have begun to be like, wow, I wonder, you know, I don't like this thing. I wonder if there's some part of me that really takes pleasure in offending him, that really takes pleasure in making him feel disrespected, that just really has this like twisted power trip delight in just stepping on his toes and I know that he'll take it and I know he'll stick around because he loves me and he'll forgive me and I'll just do it again and again. <laughs> I'm starting to get curious about that. And I was yeah. like, you know yeah. what? I think, I think I do. I think I have this sadistic part of me that knows that he's sensitive about certain stuff. And rather than, you know, consciously trying to accommodate his sensitivity 
It just has the sadistic, like, you know what? I'm not going to try to accommodate that at all. I'll just step right on it again and again. <laughs> and then I'll act like you're the bad, crazy person when you get mad. <laughs> and um, so, you know, I, anyways, so I find, identify this thing, get curious about it. And then the practice is to, I like to just lay alone and I'm on my bed and practice sinking in. Like, so saying to myself, you know, some part of me might be attracted to this. I surrender all judgment about that. I just want to feel you. I just want to be in communication with you. Um, you know, I know that it doesn't have to always be this way, but it is this way right now. I just want to uh, feel you and, and let you be present and let you come into full relationship with me. I'm not trying to change you. I'm not trying to hurt you. Like, please just come and be present with me. And so surrendering and prostrating as deep as I can and getting in touch with the sensation of like, what, what is that sensation when I, you know, violate a boundary of his that I, I know that he has, but I'm just going to just, ooh, I'm just going to do it anyway. What, what is that? Is there some, what is there? And if I can be really non-judgmental and really surrendered, I might notice that there is a pleasure there and the pleasure often has a kind of poignant quality to it. So I'd like to, you know, many of us when we were kids and our teeth would get loose, you know, you have a loose tooth and you push on your loose tooth <laughs> and it hurts, but it feels really good. And usually there's that some quality there of like pleasure mixed with pain. And so there's this pleasure mixed with pain, this like, uh, in this case, a sort of sadistic joy of like, oh, I'm going to cross this little line here and impose myself on him in a way that gives me some little illicit thrill. Can I let that thrill be as present as it wants to be? Can I honor mm. it? Can I welcome it? Can I say to it, you know, you are a part of me. Every part of me is worthy of love. Every part of me is worthy of existence. I know that you are doing something beautiful for me, even if I don't fully understand it, you know, and just really mm -hmm. inviting that to be fully present in my body and saying, you know, let me fully enjoy you. Let me like fully absorb the joy from all of the times in the past that we've successfully done this. I know that I've never been fully on your side before. I know that I've never fully let your joy and your fulfillment be present, but we've created all these fulfillments. So let's just feel that. Let's fully, let me fully receive that. And then just practicing, fully receiving all of the incredible illicit joy that I've gotten over the years by doing this thing that <laughs> irks my husband. And uh, wow, there's a lot of joy there. There's a lot of pleasure. There's a lot of like high, like a high of like power of like, oh, whoa. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you know, I want to, so I, I will just work with it that way and just um, be as kind and as loving to this part of me as non-judgmental. 
and really accepting that so this prostrating of the conscious mind really is telling it you know like you don't have to change you can keep doing this thing you've been doing i'm powerless to stop you anyways um i just want to be in relationship with you and let your joy be more present and alive in my body and uh Mm. so yeah so taking that attitude and so this is a practice that I'm currently engaged in. So this will probably take weeks of me doing this every day Mm. and dialoguing Mm. with this part. And uh, before it feels safe enough to like fully expand and fully be present. And that's what I call getting off an existential kink where there's some sort of climax moment. And that climax can be erotic. It can be felt in the genitals. Some people do a self-stroking practice with existential kink. I don't usually do that myself. I usually just feel. Um, But I have experienced that like energetic, erotic climaxes. But other times the climax can be more like a heart climax. So, you know, I might just like burst out laughing. Like I might just let the joy be present that way. Um, But whatever it is, I know that I have gotten off in existential kink when my relationship to the thing that previously I really didn't like, you know, completely changes. And I experience it changing in live action in my life. So, you know, with the thing with the scarcity, like I remember one day I got a bill in the mail that I had no idea how I was going to pay. And instead of that sending me into like a spiral of anxiety and self-loathing, I just like laughed and laughed. Like it was just like the funniest, like most delight. It made my day. I was like, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) So it's like, it's when my attitude has genuinely changed into the thing happens that I previously really, really hated and really was not taking any kind of responsibility for and feeling like, oh, poor me, this is happening again. When mm. So when this happens again, so the next time, you know, I am, you know, doing this thing, I'll know that I've really gotten off on it when, you know, my husband has his response, he'll get irritated or something, be a little gruff. And I will be like, I'll feel the joy. I will consciously feel that. I'll be like, oh, yes, I succeeded in hurting your feelings. Oh, my God, this is so <laughs> awesome. You're so, um, you're exquisite when you're angry. You know, like when I'm able to really feel that, I will know that I have gotten off on it for real and that my relationship to it has changed. And I know that as soon as, so that'll happen a few times. And then, um, you know, the game loses its fun. Like, I'll no longer be unconsciously violating this boundary because I will have fully Mm. enjoyed the game and it'll be on to a new game. Mm. Yeah, incredible. In preparation for this uh, conversation, I went, I took myself through a a process and... um, I yeah I experienced this climax and it was around an issue that you know, that's present for me that brings up uncomfortable feelings. Um, I got this frustration that I can't communicate correctly when when it really means something to me, and so I feel like I tend to create distance between me and me, me and another person, and it brings up feelings of feeling unlovable and powerless um, and inarticulate. And all these kinds of things. So this is kind of the the frequency that I was moving with um, going into this. 
um, existential kink meditation. And it really, I just dropped into a space that was, I don't know if this is just personal for me, but I felt so spacious and, and I felt like I could dive into myself and my being so freely and powerfully. And, and I just, I experienced this climax moment as well. I, I just spontaneous laughter going, holy fuck, this, it just felt so fucking good to be like, <laughs> yeah, I'm unlovable and I'm powerless. And yeah, <laughs> the experience in my body was, was palpable. It was like there was electric, pleasurable, electrical currents moving through me. And um, yeah, but I got it. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. I love to hear this. Yay. Yeah, it's crazy. It's yeah. like we're all being crucified perpetually by um you know by our experience of life and it's like the minute that we can surrender to this crucifixion like wow i'm unlovable wow i'm sadistic wow i you know i just you know the moment we can just be like ah (laughs) and really really stop struggling against it you know what what we resist persists and it's very true and what we orgasmically surrender to is able to shift yeah yeah it, it's so amazing um there's there's oh, i have so many so many places i'd want to take this but some a lingering question that i have is like um it's maybe looping back to the start and just and un- understanding the setup for this practice a little a, a little bit more like um the question is basically like where do these um where do these pleasures these kinks come from why why how do they get set up how do they get established in our unconscious mm-hmm. great question so if we think about it very literally sort of like a kink in a hose is like you have a hose mm. and it's like bent in a certain way and the water can't go through it can't move through um the uh, theory that i have about it is there's um you know freud liked to say that everybody was polymorphously perverse that as little children, we just really enjoy everything. Like that we have so much openness and so much willingness to uh, receive everything. It's just the pure sensation that it is. And we don't necessarily have these mental judgments about what's good and what's bad. And uh, I think, you know, one way that these kinks could develop is we're in, you know, we're having a sensation, we're having an experience, but we get the impression from the people around us, from our parents, our caregivers, that there's something wrong, there's something bad happening, there's something, you know, not okay. And that that feeling of like wrongness and lack of permission and not okay kind of makes that uh, hose, makes the water in the hose unable to just flow creates a kink in the hose. Um, Mm. But, you know, Mm. so there's all these, whatever, like childhood messages or childhood trauma kind of things that can have to do with it. Uh, But Mm. I really just think at a fundamental level, um, our souls are just so interested in experiencing every flavor that can be Mm. had in duality whether that's, you know, being powerless and unlovable and, un- and unable to communicate, whether that's being devalued, being, um, you know, uh, having these experiences of humiliation and scarcity or, um, mm. oh, something that I used to love was like 
getting boyfriends to be like super possessive and like crazy jealous and like having this experience of like somebody trying to control me, what, whatever it is. I like to think that our souls are just so curious about it. Um, and that there's, a, there's an inherent pleasure in just everything, just, you know, the pure mm. joy of existence. Existence is pure joy. That's a line in the book of the law. And I really like that line. Um, yeah, it's pure joy. And, <laughs> and the, the only problem is, is when we get hung up thinking like, oh, I shouldn't have any joy in sadistically torturing my loved ones. Oh, I shouldn't have any joy in being rejected, being controlled, whatever. I feel like if everything that I say, um, there's one movie in the 1990s that came out called The Addams Family. And um, have you ever seen it, Simon, The Addams Family? I, I think I have, but I can't, sometimes I get mixed up between that and the older version. Oh, is this with Christina Ricci as uh, Wednesday? Yes. Yes, yeah, Christina Ricci is Wednesday. Yes, yeah. well, highly recommend yeah. you watch it again because the Adams. Let me tell you about <laughs> the Adams family. The Adams family yeah. truly understands existential kink. They um, and they are the happiest mm. family and the happiest, most fulfilled people depicted anywhere yeah. in in all yeah. of cinema, in all of art. <laughs> so, like Morticia Adams has a house that she loves has a husband that adores her and a passionate sexual relationship with her husband. Right, right. Her, yeah, her children love, she's well-respected in her community. She has endless time to do whatever <laughs> art she wants. She has a house, a gardens that are exactly to her taste. Um, she is completely fulfilled, everything. And she knows how to completely utterly take delight in people who are trying to hurt her and her family. She just, yeah. Oh, yeah. she, and it's basically what existential kink comes mm. down to and what the Adams family, what Morticia does so well is it's an aesthetic relationship rather than a moralizing relationship to life and people and the universe. Mm -hmm. So like, <laughs> You know, Morticia is like being tortured and she's just like, oh my gosh, you're so like, this is so amazing. You're, you're backstabbing, you're cunning, you know, wow. Like we can be best friends. <laughs> um, but that sort of attitude is, there's a deep message in the Adams family because that, that existentially kinky attitude towards life, that ability to really savor malice and threat and death and horror and <laughs> the more you can savor that the more you can actually have passionate loving relationships and tons mm. and tons of money <laughs> because everything in the material world wants to be loved and savored um mm -hmm. whereas mm -hmm. when we you know people who are like, oh, that's so gross. No, I don't want that. You're basically consigning yourself to this very mediocre, constricted existence, the more. So that's what having this level is. You're having this level is how much of sensation, how much of experience can you be in relationship with without, um, 
without freaking out and disapproving of it, without freaking out and being like, oh, no, I don't like that. So, for example, um, you know, many people without really realizing it have a very small window of good stuff that they will allow to happen to them without Mm. freaking the fuck out and self-destructing. And you see this with people who win the lottery. Um, They have tons of money and then suddenly they become drug addicts or whatever. They destroy themselves and with celebrities and likewise. So it's like how much good stuff can happen to you because good stuff is highly sensational. So how much sensation can you be present with and be in relationship with it in a centered, equilibrated way without freaking out so Mm. usually you have to be willing to open the window so it's both pleasant and unpleasant sensations um so the way that i learned this was in orgasmic meditation where there was this uh acknowledgement that you know a lot of women um have a narrow range of sensation that they know how to get off on that they know how to experience as pleasure and so somebody could be stroking their clitoris And the stroker might feel, oh, there's a magnetic resonance with this spot on the clitoris. But the woman might not know how to be, that might be out of her range, even though there's Mm. that magnetic resonance there. So the woman would ask Mm. the stroker to like change the stroke or move the feeling. And the challenge in the practice would be the invitation to the woman to like, see if you can expand the range of sensation that you are willing to uh, get off on. And, mm. and likewise, life can be in this resonant stroking relationship with us. And that there's, I mean, there's just, there's truth in that magnetism and that resonance and life is always stroking me on the resonant magnetic spot. Um, but if I'm not in approval of that, if I'm not willing to fully take that in and surrender to it and experience the like out of control uh, joy of it, because, you know, that's also orgasm is out of control. It's an involuntary limbic thing that's happening. Mm. Um, Mm. If I'm not willing to go into that, then I'll be like, "Ugh, no, get away, move, get off that spot. Don't be on that resonant spot with me life. And I Mm. refuse Mm. the actual deep, resonant stroke so to me there's just this ongoing practice of um knowing that god life the universe is always stroking me in this very resonant magnetic way and will i let my conditioned mind refuse to enjoy that or will i surrender to the total out of control involuntary (sighs) orgasm that life is Yeah. Yeah. Good question. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So watch the Adams family. It's a great <laughs> Halloween movie, and they give a really deep transmission about exactly how to do this. And and what they what I also love about the mm. Adams family is they're very in touch with their immortal nature, with their mm. um, you know, and with their ancestry and everything. And this awareness of immortality and this awareness of the larger self with a capital S, I feel, is really central to um to magic, to mm. mystery. I know that ISTA considers itself a mystery school, and I, I hope to learn more about that one day. I was 
saying to Simon before we started recording that, um, you know, I, I also run a mystery school. It's called Sleepover Mystery School. And from what I hear about ISTA, it's the, the other existing organization that calls itself a mystery school, but actually seems to me like a legitimate mystery school. <laughs> so I think that that's very, very cool. I think the organizations um, and the work that we do probably have a lot in common because we're both working with this, you know, sexual orgasmic uh, current as a portal to these mm-hmm. larger dimensions of ourselves, which conventional yeah. society shuts down. Yeah. 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 So I, I love how you have, you know, uh, bridging across there to, to this idea of mystery and and placing in the street like uh, yeah uh, could you say could you say more about this um i i, I guess like the sh- like like the shadow like uh, the unconscious the um uh, like kink there's perhaps a prevailing attitude towards mystery a discomfort why one of discomfort feeling discomfort discomfort uncomfortable feelings towards mystery like we we don't like it because we want to know we want to control what is going to happen um we don't want things to happen to us um we want to plan for things uh, even just thinking oh we've only got one life we want to guard against death we want to make sure that we're optimizing the best years that we have these kinds of things come to me um when i feel like I'm resisting the mystery that life or the universe wants to bring, wants to bring me. Um, and, and I think this is pretty, probably pretty common, like a resistance towards mystery. Um, and, and this belief in control and our capacity to <laughs> decide what happens to us. Um, so yeah, could you, could you maybe go from there and, and, and just tell us a little bit about the mystery and, and how, how your mystery school approaches these ideas and and what you're inviting people to step into oh thank you thank you yes um so who so okay so my book is about shadow work and something that i like to say these days is that shadow working is god working so there's this term um that literally means god working and it's theurgy and all of the mystery schools of antiquity whether it's in um you know sumer egypt uh Greek mystery schools, all of them were concerned with theurgy, with God working, this idea of like, how Mm. do we use ritual? Um, How do we use gesture and drama and uh, perhaps some kind of entheogen to bring into, uh, (laughs) to bring into us uh, a relationship with divine revelation? And that's theurgy. And, um, it turns out that when you integrate and come into relationship with these parts of the unconscious that like we were talking about earlier, that puts you into a much more direct relationship, a much more receptive relationship with the divine. So for example, people who begin doing this existential kink work, just because, you know, they want to shift some situation in their lives end up having, you know, dreams and visions where there's gods <laughs> speaking to them and interacting mm. with them. And that's been my experience too. That's what happens because the more um, whole we are, the more the whole begins talking to us. So in Sleepover Mystery School, what we focus on is we focus on um, integrating three sets of polarities. So that's life and death, 
masculine and feminine, and mortal and divine. So we have mm. uh, three top secret rituals, I'm sworn to silence about them, that um, we take people through that uh, that use all the tools of ritual to um, spark a process of integration of those very, very deep polarities that the human mind does totally, just like you were saying, has a lot of resistance to. Naturally, we have a lot of resistance to death. We have, you know, when we're in, I mean, there's all sorts of things happening with <laughs> masculine and feminine these days, but oftentimes, you know, the ego mm. will be like, well, I'm in a woman's body. I'm a woman and that's what I am. I'm just, you know, and meanwhile, there's these other dimensions of us. And, uh, and a big one, obviously, also is um, the distinction between mortal and divine or human and divine. So mm. uh, again, in Western culture, we've had all of this conditioning about, you know, I'm a sinful pathetic little worm and great God is judging me anyways. So the art of finding out, you know, what, what that integration is like, anyways, we do these, we do these rituals mm. and um, it's, uh, it's this work of um, remembrance. So remembrance is the key word of our mystery school, remember. So we have the saying, um, mm. love is the memory of God. Remember to love well. And then we connect that to the um, do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will because our mystery school is in this current that is um, thalamic. That's, we call it the 93 current. So it arose out of, um, there's this actually, there's a rather direct route of transmission from the mystery school um, at Eleusis, the temple at Eleusis, which operated in Greece for scholars think 2,000 to 4,000 years. And then that mystery school was burned down by monks about 400 AD. The priests of mm. that mystery school fled into Athens and Alexandria. From Alexandria, they constellated a certain group of practices, which was then passed down throughout um, sort of uh, secret lineages in Europe and which emerged in the 19th century as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in England which Alistair Crowley, Dion Fortune, Israel Regardi was associated with. And basically everything that we have in um, modern a culture, so like Wicca, Druid movements, everything like that sprang out of the Golden Dawn. Um, and specifically, Thelema had this heritage of sex magic woven into it. And there's this interesting way in which <laughs> those the mystery rituals that happened at Eleusis, nobody for sure knows what they were because the initiates maintained secrecy. So there's no history book where you can look it up and find it. But what me and my um, colleagues found is that by doing the magic that's within the lineage, within the tradition, we started to receive in dreams and revelations, uh, visions, information mm. about how to do these rituals in the modern world. Um, and, and so that's what we do. And it's, mm. 
it's been incredible. We, yeah, folks have very um, profound healings. And I guess I would say there's just this pervasive uh, <laughs> kind of love atmosphere. It's like very deep love magic that's happening at mm. Sleepover Mystery School. And I could go mm. on and on about it forever, but thank you for <laughs> letting mm. me speak to it. So. Yeah, yeah. And the archive of, of Mystery School um, knowledge, wisdom, accumulated experience being transmitted, not through paper and not through... Um, you know, like library, what's in a library, but literally in the practices and and in in the consciousness that is sparked and opened up when you practice them. Uh, yeah, as as the lineage asks you to, I guess, and then and then weird shit starts to happen. And yes. To those <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Weird, weird and wonderful shit starts to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, oh, wow, there's, there's, there's so much here for us to explore in future conversations. Um, yeah, but uh, thank you so much for, for so generously, like, inviting us into, into to the world that you already so generously share in, in, in this book, Existential Kink, which people can order and in your programs. Um, I'd, love, I'd love to hear how, I'd love to share with our listeners and, and people watching how people can uh, get in contact with you. Uh, your preferred ways of engaging with people who want to who want to come and experience your work. But first, if you're open to it, we often ask people some quick fire questions at the end. Okay. Of, uh, into, are you up for it? Hit me. So, in just a few words or less, I've got I've got five I've got five questions here. Just in a few words or less, tell me. What's one thing that really annoys you? Oh boy. Uh, well, love and light, spiritual people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're alone on that one. <laughs> what is your what is your biggest vice? Vanity. Mm. Who would who would you love to have dinner with? My old friend Alistair Crowley. Mm-hmm. What's a song you love hearing? Uh, Roses, the Ibanec remix. Oh, okay. I looked that one up. And finally, what is a ritual or tradition in your life that you just love? Oh, every morning my husband and my little daughter and I, we sing a, uh, a song to Ollie. We sing um, Good Morning Starshine from Hair. So that's fun. Wow. Oh, that's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. I love that so much. Yeah. Carolyn, thank you so, so much. How can, people, what's, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah. Um, so depending on when this airs, I'm sort of in between websites. I've, um, there's carolyngraceelliot.com and then also um, my new website that's coming into existence should be ready in a week or two is just Carolyn Lovewell. I don't know what the ending will be, but if you search my name, Carolyn Elliot or Carolyn Lovewell, my husband and I were developing a new family name. It's Lovewell. Um, mm-hmm. They can find my website and there's um, on my website, you can join my email list. You can get free chapters from the book or free EK meditations. Join my email list. My email list is the best way to be in touch with me. I send all sorts of fun 
emails out and resources. And um, also depending on when this airs, uh, probably if, it, if it's within the near future, um, applications for Sleepover Mystery School 2024 will still be open. So on my webpage, you can find the yeah, the links to Sleepover Mystery School, and you'll see all about the program. It's a nine-month program. And um, ooh, let's see. Uh, I also I have an Instagram, and I have a link tree in my Instagram. You can find links to various things there. I also I have a podcast um, with my dear friend Layla. It's called Sleepover Podcast with Carolyn and Layla, and that's available on pretty much every podcast platforms, Spotify and Apple and everything. And um, we interview people from our mystery school and we talk about far out things. So you can tune into the podcast. Um, yeah, that's how folks can get in touch with me. Amazing. Awesome. Great. Well, thank you so much uh, for sharing your time once again and uh, look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Yes. Thank you, Simon. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Sexual Shamanic Podcast. To find out more about ISTA's retreats, festivals, workshops, or to work with our faculty, see our website, ista.life, or find us on Facebook at www.ista.life, or on Instagram at istacommunity.com.